This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Welcome to Ecology XP, a series by the Pika Science Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian sokorowski Legree, and I am here to talk to you about all things ecology and video games. For those of you who don't know me, I am a PhD student who studies arachnids and ecology. If you don't know much about ecology, that's okay. If you'd like a more in-depth introduction, you can check out my interview with Dr. Ray in the PokeScience podcast. But for time's sake, in short, ecology is about how organisms and their environment interact. As many of you know, one of my goals for the EXP podcast is to bring together scientists, gamers, and gamer scientists. So today, my gamer scientist guest is Sebastian. Sebastian, introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Hello, hello. Hi, Jillian. Uh, my name is Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri. I am your friendly neighborhood spider scientist, um, but I also do wildlife photography and really a lot of science communication, just like this, finding ways for people to connect with science and spiders and all other kinds of weird, fun nature things in ways that are fun and exciting. Sebastian, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Most people don't know this, but Sebastian was and is my hero. <laughs> I followed Sebastian on social media for a long time before finally we had the chance to actually interface through the American Arachnological Society. And I feel like it's safe to say we're friends. <laughs> You can publicly say we're not I, friends. I think, no, no, no. You know what? I'm going to call, you know what? This is it. This is the point. Sorry, EXP people. You had to hear it first. Jillian and I are not friends. I've never, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I'm very, very proud, honestly, to count you amongst my friends. Uh, it's sort of this tradition, I feel like, of like spider scientist people on the internet where we'll find someone from social media, be like, oh my God, they're doing the coolest thing ever. And then, like, a couple of years go by, and then, like, they, like, pass on the torch in a way. Like, for me, it was Catherine Scott, who I, like, was one of the first big, like, spider people, quote-unquote, that I would see online. And then, oh, yeah, later on, I got to work with her, and we became friends. And then, looking at the next generation, I was like, oh, I find, like, Jillian's Twitter account, like, these are good posts. These are, like, good shit posts. They're, like, funny but they're also informative and like, that's perfect. That's the brand. That's what you want. Um, and we, it's sort of been like this thing of getting really excited to see that the people, the new people coming into your field are doing better than you are that are like, oh, they're taking this like to a next level. Uh, and so I've been so excited to see you. You're starting, you know, when we met, you hadn't started your PhD. You think you were still doing your master's. You're now in like oh a gosh. really cool lab. You're doing projects like this. And I'm like, when I was at your point in your in the career, I wasn't even like I science communication was like a vague thing that I didn't even know the word for. And so to be able to like kind of be that step up for someone else is so cool. I feel like it's like a SciComm lineage. Mm-hmm. And so it's like Catherine, you and me and others. And now I want Catherine to hear this and be like, you're my Psycom <laughs> grandma, Catherine. Basically, that's, I'm pretty sure legally that's how it works. So um, anyways, Sebastian, 
I don't think you're wondering why I brought you here. Of course, well, the purpose actually, is... <laughs> dear listeners, I have to confess, uh, Jillian has told me basically zero. She told me to show up today and just sort of be myself, which I'm doing my best. Um, so if there's at any point where I seem confused or don't know what's going on, it's Jillian's fault. But I'm like, I'm here. I know we're talking about science. I know we're talking about video games. Those are two big things in my life. Wherever it goes, I'm there for it. I never tell my guests what the topic is because I want them, number one, to not prepare me because everyone's super busy and I want them to rest. Um, And secondly, I want their authentic reactions to everything that is talked about. And I am so excited to talk with you. This is the commitment to the bit. This is what, this is... People, this is what you get with your commitment. It's great. So my first question for you, Sebastian, is what is your favorite bug type Pokemon? See, okay, look, you have you have to you have to let me prepare. This is why you let the guests prepare, because it's very hard to pick just one favorite bug type Pokemon. Because people would be like, well, Sebastian, you love spiders. You're all about spiders. You're gonna pick one of the spiders for spider Pokemon. And it's like, okay, that like obviously that's true. But when I start, first started like forming strong relationships with like what Pokemon I thought were cool, I was a little kid. And I, if I'm, unless I'm like fully blanking part of my memory, we don't have any spider Pokemon in Gen 1. Ariado, Spinarak Ariados is the first we get that's in Gen 2. And so there are a few bugs there, but the ones that like I gravitated towards early on was like Scyther. And then when we got to Gen 2 and we got Caesar, and I was like, it's bug steel and for some reason like my brain was like that's the coolest possible typing um and so for the longest time it would be caesar and i feel like you know you've got joltic and the galvantula line so the gen 5 electric bug spider uh, is Jol- i guess joltic is a tick and becomes more spider-like as it evolves um but that's also kind of like a jumping spider when it's small. Either way, our arachnid line, design-wise, they are, like, by far my favorite. Like, I think they look really cool. The visuals are really cool. Galvantula has... Sorry, I got distracted. There's, like, a cat tail. Yes, it's like, I apologize. But it was just the tail, so it just looked like some sort of, like, tendril, like, snaking up in Jillian's video. And so- It's my tendril. Listeners, I do also want to explain, Jillian did give me permission to just interrupt whatever, and I'm taking that as liberty to interrupt myself when I notice things. So you're getting the full ADHD experience here. Um, but to bring it back to Pokemon, I would say it's Caesar and then like Galvantula. Well, today I wanted to bring you into the Galar region, so Pokemon Sword and Shield Gen 8. Okay. And we are going to become the Galarian Entomologist. All right. Okay, let's do this. This is good because I don't know them that well. I love the Galar region. I think I owe the Galar region a lot for reigniting my love for Pokemon. I am so sorry. Tendrils <laughs> no, no, no. everywhere. Again, <laughs> cat. It, it, the cat is appearing. It is taking up most of Jillian's screen, but the cat's face and body are not visible. Just the tail and sometimes a butt as it like moves in front of the screen. They're my voidlings. I actually have two. <laughs> and there were um, two separate tails you saw. So Pokemon Sword and Shield is one of my favorites. Like I said, it's 
reignited my love for Pokemon. And I think that the game itself, I don't know how much of it you have played. Have you played Sword and Shield at all? I've only played a little bit, and may that might also be an invented memory just from like seeing footage and like being at a friend that had the game. But I've never played through uh, I think any of the Gen 7 games, the Switch ones, except for Legends Arceus, which is not like a mainline game. So I am kind of coming in fresh here. I know generally the geographic region of the real world that we're, we're sort of like set, setting this fictional part of the Pokemon world in, or the part of the fictional Pokemon world in. But that's sort of where my... I know there's a lot of soccer. Um, I know that there's stadiums and that sometimes the pokemon get real big and sometimes that looks funny and sometimes that looks less impressive and sometimes that looks cool and that's like that's where i'm at so this is you're getting the fresh takes a little bit about the gala region since you haven't played and perhaps some of our listeners out there haven't played or would just like some history brush up pokemon sword and shield was released in the u.s in november 2019 and takes place in the gala region like I said, I really love Sword and Shield. I love the game. And I also think the corresponding anime, Pokemon Journeys, is one of the best iterations of the Pokemon anime. I think people have a lot of nostalgia for Indigo, so I won't say anything about Indigo League. But Pokemon Journeys is, I I think, is top tier. That's really interesting to hear because, again, I haven't watched Pokemon anime. Again, since I was like a little kid, I was... I don't know. I think the last stuff I remember was um, the Ruby Sapphire. I don't remember what they, maybe they just called it Pokemon. Was it just like Hoenn was the subtitle? But that's like my last like stuff where I could, oh yeah, I remember parts of that show. And then I, you know, fell off of it. Um, so it's always interesting to see people who have d had different experiences and also how it's like changed over the years. Cause I'll, I'll like see glimpses. And I'm like, wow, they like Ash looked like genuinely looks different. Uh, and after seeing him not change for a while, it is an interesting experience. I actually really like the art style change. Um, it changes pretty drastically for the Alola region and then for Journeys. And I love both. I think both make those anime stand out. And there's also Pokemon Generations, I believe, which covers like a brief backstory glimpse into each of the Galar region Pokemon leaders, which is super cool and it's really high quality and they're like 10 minute episodes each on YouTube. Everyone should watch it. Anyways, I'm geeking out right now because I seriously love the Galar region, but this region is based on the UK and the region in the game has a total population of around 727 people which makes oh. it the fifth largest oh, is, region. Okay. In, in the number of NPCs in the yes. game and not yes. like in the fictional. I was just like, whoa, what happened? Did I like, <laughs> I know there's cities. <laughs> I, was, I was like waiting for the thousand at the end of that. And oh. like, yeah, that makes sense. Pokemon's like a relatively depopulated world compared to ours. But there's still like a lot. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Mental disconnect of like, did I miss like an apocalypse or something? <laughs> Well, we, we'll talk about that. Okay, okay, all right. But it is the fifth largest region by population compared to other Pokemon regions, and it is the second island region to be introduced in Pokemon and is said to be physically closest to Kalos, supposedly within swimming distance, which makes sense since Kalos represents France, 
And not going to lie, I had to double check all of my geography on this. I definitely was like, okay, where's the UK? Where's France? How close are yeah, they? Yeah, Is this yeah, lining yeah. up? Yeah, no, it's like right there. You can, I think people have swum the, the English Channel or what I think that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Which now that all makes sense that it's within swimming distance. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> but like I said, it, it just, this game... And this and the anime reignited my love for Pokemon. And one of the reasonings for that is that it does that one of the brilliant things that Sword and Shield does is introduce to us the beginnings of open world aspects to right. Pokemon gaming. Sword and Shield was clearly the pilot for the genuine open world Pokemon games like Legends yeah. of Arceus and Scarlet and Violet. And it is super buggy. Sword and Shield is so <laughs> buggy when you get into the wild areas. I should have said, this is the other thing I know about Sword and Shield. I have watched the, like, glitch compilations and all of that, <laughs> especially when it first came out. And so that much I know is that just, like, it doesn't want to set... Sometimes the game is does not want to exist, and it chooses to, to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to not do so. I, it showed the devs <laughs> what not to do with open yeah. worlds. I'm excluding Pokemon Snap here, but for the first time in a mainline game, this is when we get to see Pokemon interacting with their environment and with each other, and this gives us more insight into the ecology of the Pokemon world through the games, not just the anime. And we actually get to see what the game designers envisioned for the world of Pokemon, which is why I love Sword and Shield. It's not a perfect game, but I love that it's the foundational basis for where we are now with open world Pokemon gaming. I think that is really cool that you mentioned that because I was listening to one of your earlier episodes of this show and you were talking about trying to figure out, you know, what can you tell about the ecology of this fictional world from like what we see in the games? And you kept hitting these points of like, well, you know, it's just like some sprite art and we don't actually get to observe these animals outside of the context of the battles and to the extent that we can trust the, the maybe, uh, to, the, the, to the extent that we can trust how reliable the Pokedex entries are. And so it's, it, you have to make a lot of inferences, right? You, you have to like, okay, what do, the, what do they look like? How, what do they... What can we get from like the animals in real life that might be based on? What can we pick up from depictions in anime and other media? But actually seeing the animals sort of be the sorry the Pokemon actually be animals in a in a setting lets you takes away some it's of that immersive. ambiguity. Yeah, it's immersive, yeah. and it's like there's a reason why um, I spent a lot of time in Legends Arceus just like running around and catching stuff and watching things. Because that open world, <laughs> I think it's the thing that everyone's been dreaming of, right? And why I think so many people were, especially with the most recent games at first, like, oh, this is great, but I wish it was bigger. And then they're like, okay, now, you, now we've got that sort of ability everywhere to like feel like this is a more real place. And again, I don't actually, I, I know there, there's open world stuff. And I think that, that was something that I think a lot of us were really excited about with Pokemon Go originally when that came out of seeing the Pokemon in sort of their natural context, quote unquote, particularly in the early days and the way it was advertised where it's like, oh, you go to like these areas and that's where this Pokemon lives. And you have to kind of like 
be a sort of naturalist in your mind to try to catch the right Pokemon by going to appropriate areas. And that in the time that I played, I know that changed even just in like sort of that brief, like first few months to a year of the game's kind of evolution where it felt like that kind of got relaxed a bit and there was a little more like you could find kind of things everywhere because there's the game design aspect of like, otherwise you're just going to be seeing the same few things over and over. But it was a very exciting idea to have to choose to like improve your, your, your experience in the game by thinking as if you were in their world. Of course, we all have our biases. I have mine, you have yours, and returning listeners know that I am extremely biased towards invertebrates and invertebrate ecology. I feel like most of my episodes are largely about invertebrates, and I'm trying really hard not to do that, but I want to full send it for this episode and get the geek out. So when I saw this open world for the first time in Sword and Shield, my first thought was thinking about what all the inverts, what all the arthropods are up to, where can I find them in this open world setting? Is it mimicking, you know, what I would see in real life kind of thing? And I should also note that in the Galar region, um, we don't actually get that many unique bug types, but we do have a lot of bug types. It's just the, I would say, endemic or native species to Galar is relatively small. So in the Galar region, the ones that are unique to this region are number one, the blip bug line. So blip bug, blip, blip bug, blip bug, dotler or beetle. And then we have snom and frost moth. And last, my favorites, which we'll get to talk about is sizzlepede and centiscorch. So there's only a total of seven endemic species to That's the Galar region. I need more <laughs> bugs. What are they doing here? I need more bugs in my. I need to get more bugs in my game. Come on. You have bug types from across the gens, but these are the ones that are unique to the Galar region. But I think each of these lines is relatively exciting, and I'm really stoked to get to talk about them in depth. And so, you know, in talking about bug types, of course, I wanted to exploit your knowledge because for sure, who else is is the I would say like not necessarily non-native because you know animals can be found a species can be found in many different parts of the world even one species you know throughout many countries but what are the other po- bug type pokemon that at least live here that we know of or is that or are we saving those for later it's a very long list and okay you'll okay have then to i will yeah. i won't yeah. make you list them <laughs> but before we can talk about these seven pokemon and i i didn't want to fill the whole thing with just bugs um because there's a lot of cool things about the Galar region. But I want to think about bugs in the context of time and in the context of evolution. And like I said, this was this was going to be all about bugs. And then when I started writing the script, I went <laughs> down a total rabbit hole. And you are going to see what I mean. But I promise this comes back to the bug types it just might be a hot minute. <laughs> so hold on to your hats, All right. Sebastian and listeners. So thinking about ecology and how organisms function in present time, I'm a big believer in starting as far back as possible. I love thinking about the historical context of present day organisms. So let's cover some Galarian history. 
The storyline of Sword and Shield is that 20,000 years ago, prior to the game start, a meteor crashed into Galar carrying the legendary Pokemon Eternatus. And you can go ahead and Google what Eternatus looks like right now. It's this gigantic space Pokemon that looks badass. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's like a like a it's like a very spiky. Uh, okay, this is, you know what this is, though? This is a Yu-Gi-Oh card. This is, um, this is if, like, you took Red Eyes Black Dragon, but you made it just, like, like, even spikier and, and kind of more tech. Uh, this is what I'm getting from this guy here. Okay. It's a, it's a cool guy, for sure. It's cool, very... Cool dude. Very space, you feel the space in looking at him. Okay. So was he a good cool dude or a bad cool dude? Or they, 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 I don't know. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So to give you an idea of this time scale, 20,000 years ago is around the Paleolithic era or also known as the beginning of the Stone Age. So when humans started making stone tools, Eternatus wakes up 17,000 years later from this meteor crash. And when it wakes up, this is what's called the darkest day in Galarian history, because during so this is the darkest 3, day, years. yes, three thousand years ago, prior to game start, got it. So Eternatus. I, so, so every time when you like read about Galarian history, it says three thousand years ago, but when you think about it, that means Eternatus was in slumber for like seventeen thousand years, and yeah. I didn't want to lose that, which is it's crazy. I know, it's well, just, I think it's important to to remember a meteor hit this place, <laughs> which is um. <laughs> You know, in in some cases, a like life threatening or like life as in like not my individual personal life, but like the concept of life in this area threatening right. level event. And so, it's really interesting to think about probably all or many of the Pokemon that were living there twenty thousand years ago may have gotten wiped out, and what we see starting. Or I don't I don't know where we're going, but at you know three thousand years ago, what's around then is stuff that has mo possibly moved back into the area in the intervening seventeen thousand years. So you have a mass extinction, and then potentially a lot of new species moving in. And I don't know what the timescale is for like Pokemon diversifying and ev evolving, but like certainly in real life timescale, that is enough time to see start seeing a lot of changes in the animals and adapting to that kind of local environment you are so spot on about everything we are about to discuss oh I am okay so good happy. this is great i'm so happy you got it um so during the darkest day eternatus absorbs the energy of the galar region which causes this big black does. storm right right yeah. and the black storm causes pokemon across the galar region to dynamax and gigantamax and if you're unfamiliar with this mechanic in the game Basically, it's this power-up you can give to your Pokemon where they get insanely large or get insanely large and take on a new form. So some of the Gigantamax Pokemon are... It's so cool. This is one of my favorite mechanics in the Pokemon game. Like, we we got, like, Z-moves and... Um, what is, there's, like, power-up crystals and... Mega yeah, megas. Yeah. It's interesting but to I, see them experiment. I, I, I like... Pers for me, the ones that I spent the most time with was Megas, and I definitely had there's some mega evolutions that look really cool and then there are some that are like that i was less into but as the mechanics have kind of moved along i think that mega and like dynamax i feel like the one are the ones that i enjoyed the most the like 
oh, you have one special move that you can do felt less sort of like exciting than like, oh, this thing transforms and it kind of like, you have to shape your battle and your party around that instead of like, oh, I just have a super button that I hit. Um, <laughs> then, so, you know, because like, I don't know about Gigantamax, so again, I haven't played games with them, but in the, with the Megas, you could like, you'd have type changes or you'd have stat distribution changes, which means you'd start with something and then you could kind of pivot your Pokemon into having a different sort of role in your team. For Gigantamax and Dynamax, they get insanely large, which um, buffs certain stats. Mm -hmm. And then you also get like a specific Dynamax Gigantamax moves, which are different from your normal moves. Gotcha. So during this event, the darkest day, Eternatus is absorbing Gal Galarian energy, causing this black storm, causing everyone to Dynamax, Gigantamax by everyone, the Pokemon. And during this event, the Pokemon go berserk and almost destroy the region. So not only do we have this meteorite crashing in Galar, we also have the darkest day where all the Pokemon go nuts and destroy basically almost everything. And the only thing that stops the Pokemon from destroying the Galar region is these two legendary Pokemons, Zacian and Zamazenta, who defeat Eternatus. And they look okay, like wolves. I have seen these guys. They are they are the sword. They are Sith they are the from two Dark Souls. Wolves inside and then, you. <laughs> yeah, and then a shield dog who just seems like I, I understand that sword and shield, but the one with the sword just looks more compelling. I, <laughs> I have sword. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I have sword because of that. I always go by the coolest legendary. Yeah, I mean that's a good, you know, it's a good, good way of picking it. It's like I want Shield Dog to be cool, but like Sword Dog is the dog with a sword in its mouth. That's just cooler. And sadly, again, when it comes down to it, sometimes you look for a reason, and it's just someone scrawled "It's cool." Period <laughs> on a note, and like that. <laughs> We'll have do? to have a poll online or something. <laughs> sword dog or shield dog? I'm sure sword dog beats it by like, by just overwhelming numbers. Unless shield dog is like crazy good competitive, it's gonna be sword dog for sure. Regardless, there is so much to unpack here. And first off, a meteorite seems pretty catastrophic ecologically for the Galar region. Um, so catastrophic that I used an asteroid simulator from Neil.fun <laughs> to try and see what the actual damage would look like. So for oh, my no. space nerds out there, in Galarian lore, it is called a meteorite, and that is different from an asteroid, and I did use an asteroid simulator, and to clarify the difference, an asteroid is a small rocky object that orbits the sun, whereas a meteorite is smaller, and I don't think it can go into orbit. Please, space people, correct me, um, but a meteorite is a small piece of an asteroid or a comet that burns up upon entering Earth's atmosphere, but a meteorite yeah. can make contact with Earth's surface. So I just wanted to throw that out there before anyone comes for me for, you know, saying it's a meteorite and then using an asteroid simulator. I mean, I think I think when we're in the Pokemon space, we have to, and I think with any sort of like science communication, when we're talking about sciencey stuff outside of the context, even, you know, even in the context of like research papers, we have to accept that like words can have multiple meanings in different situations and that's okay as long as we, you know, set some sort of joint expectations like 
Pokemon evolve, right, as they level up. But what they're really doing, if we were to use words for animals that do that in real life, is that they are metamorphosing or undergoing metamorphosis. They are not changing their their traits over evolutionary time, over like long periods of time between generations. They are within one lifetime changing the shape of their body and their abilities and things like that. Uh, and like, that's just, you know, words in common context mean different things. There's like a phase that I went through when I was, I was the person to be like, I'm going to get in Jillian's comments. I'm going to be like, well, actually, 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 it shouldn't be called a meteorite, even though everyone in the game calls it a meteorite, even though we often use the word meteorite, meteor and asteroid somewhat interchangeably. Don't forget uh, comet and meteoroid. And yeah. I've yeah, exactly. so much about space rocks. <laughs> um, but then there's a point where I, where you, you get, I lived through that part of myself and I look back on that being like, that wasn't fun for anyone. And it also didn't help them learn because if you just run around yelling at people like you're wrong, especially in a situation where they're like not looking for that information and you're not, when you're doing it in a way that is shameful um, you're much less likely to like, I don't know, get people interested in learning what the new thing is. It's like one of the first things that you learn when you go into um, any sort of like training about teaching in the classroom or teaching in a museum or anything like that is when you ask questions and you try to get input from the audience. If you ask yes or no questions like, do you know this or did you know that? Even if people aren't conscious of it, we don't like saying, oh, no, we didn't know that. Or having a direct question asked and then having someone say, no, that's wrong. What that does to people is it just like shuts their brains off from learning. You just like kind of put up this like defense of just like, oh, well, I feel bad now and I'm going to take too long to process that to like get into the other thing. So a lot of what good science communication does is let you turn that from like a no, you're wrong to like a conversation of like, oh yeah, it makes sense that you might, that it makes a lot of sense that everyone in the game calls this a meteorite, even though it might be classified differently in a specific situation, because that's just how we use that word. This has been a big aside, but I think it's, and you're it's welcome an to cut one. this. I think, it, yeah, I think it's, it's a thing that is, Maybe it's different now when I was younger, for sure, in like geek nerdy spaces, there was that culture of like, you have to, if you didn't use the super specific technical term, even though the sort of general content of your idea is accurate or appropriate, it was like free range to sort of pick on people like that. And it created a lot of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and And I think that uh, saying it now, Ecology EXP is a anti-asshole zone where <laughs> Famously <laughs> we are actively anti-asshole, anti yes. So that's all to say. <laughs> oh, oh, did you I have used... trouble? Did you have trouble segueing back from anti-asshole zone? Was that a <laughs> did I did I did I leave you at to dry? <laughs> Just like, well, it's Jillian, Jillian's the host. Jillian will segue back here. Right? You, you you can do this, right? Yeah. This is all to say, don't be an asshole about asteroids and meteorites. At least not to me in the context of this podcast. Look, if you if you want to, tw just do it. Do like, uh, don't tweet Jillian. Tweet me. 
and I will either ignore you or respond with something unrelated. Uh, but you yeah. can you can you can release that energy to me. That's fine. Tweet out sub if you have problems <laughs> with asteroid versus meteorite simulator. Um, if you're still if, on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if if you're still there, if if Sebastian is still there, at me on Twitter about asteroids versus meteors versus meteorites. Well, in this simulator, the assumption besides asteroid equals meteorite is that the Galar region is a one-for-one -one replica of the UK because, of course, I can't like put a map of the Galar region in this simulator. I can only simulate real-world places. But the assumption is that Galar region equals UK and Hammerlock from the Galar region is equivalent to Birmingham in the UK. So the meteorite containing Eternatus and and I, I hope someone this isn't probably good enough for the Reddit page, but this this is R slash they did the math. Okay. <laughs> so Eternatus, the, the, the meteorite containing Eternatus has to be big enough to hold it. And Eternatus yeah. is 65 feet tall, 20 meters normally, and in its Gigantamax form, it's 328 feet, hundred meters big. So in my simulator, I made my asteroid about a thousand feet, three hundred meters in diameter, assuming that Eternatus is in Gigantamax form and needs padding for the when landing. When it crashed, do right. we know? Do we have any sense of of what form it was when it crashed? Or no, there isn't okay. a ton of information about this particular event. All we really know from the game lore is that this meteorite crashes, and so a lot of this is just me making assumptions. So you. People can go on this asteroid simulator and see What's for themselves. What's the name of the asteroid simulator? Uh, it's if you just Google asteroid simulator, it should be the first thing that comes up. Neil.fun. <laughs> yeah, Neil.fun. N E A L. Fun. So, like I said, in my simulator, I made my asteroid about one thousand feet, three hundred meters in diameter. I think I used an iron asteroid. I don't have any reasoning for why I chose iron. You have other options like stone or gold, but I chose iron. And well, okay, what type is it? What type is a Ternatus? It's poison dragon. Yeah, okay, that doesn't really tell us anything. Do we? I, I am gonna. The is, is the poison like? Okay, let me look at its moves. Can we infer anything <laughs> about? Is this poison as in like mercury poison or poison as in like? Oh, good question. I have no like, idea. It might be, the poison might be indicative of like a toxic metal. Which oh, that's to, so but smart. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of just going with what, let's see. There's nothing in here that goes one way or the other, I would say, from like what I'm looking at its move list. Um, but I, I'm classic meteorite, classic, you know, composition. Standard. It's, you know, yeah. default, default meteorite. And in terms of default, the average meteorite speed is between 30,000 to 55,000 miles per hour. So I set my asteroid to 50,000 miles per hour. What was your impact angle? I think 45 degrees. Okay, that's a default. Now, where's Birmingham? This is... See, the thing is, I feel bad. I'm putting myself on blast because I... When I was producing the BBC Earth podcast, I did meet some people from Birmingham. Um, and so now I'm trying to find Birmingham, but I don't know where it is. It's like, it's central UK, kind of. If you forget Scotland exists, it's like the center of that landmass. Launch asteroid. 
And then it gives you a bunch of cool stats about what your asteroid did. So if I set my meteorite for a thousand foot diameter traveling at 50,000 miles per hour at a 45 degree angle, what I had pop up for my asteroid was that there would be a 1.3 mile slash 2,092 meter wide crater that is created upon impact. Um, it would cause a 2,042 foot tall tsunami, tsunami <laughs> and a hurricane releases within a day. There would be a 6.5 mile slash 10.5 kilometer wide fireball. And a oh, it's just the fireball just popped up. Oh god. <laughs> The fire okay, so the fireball's on a delay, so you like click it, right? And it's like and the little impact crater hits and you're like, oh. I mean like that's that's a mile, but that's not too bad. That's like and then like it takes a second and then the fireball appears. <laughs> so it destroys basically half of the UK, about half of the Galar region. And then <sighs> Along with that, nearly all oh trees gosh. within 63 miles or 101 kilometers would be destroyed. So to say this is catastrophic for the environment, I feel like is a little bit of an understatement. Yeah, th there is a zone of this that when it comes out and it's just like, how torched do you get? And the inner zone is like, I think just incinerated and then it goes to like 50% fatality. Then it's clothes just catch on fire being in here. So you just like light on fire. And then after that, it's like third degree and second degree. The second degree, second degree burn radius on this thing is ridiculous. It is, um, it, it is, it is truly, I'm zooming out, like almost the width of the United Kingdom. I wish terrifying. I did more research on like how many people humans bipeds existed in this region at the time 20,000 year, years ago i actually have no idea what like human migration looked like at that point that is one thing that i didn't do but it would kill anybody pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. instantly <laughs> pretty bad <laughs> so needless to say 20,000 years ago galler was really going through it Ooh, and likely yeah. much of the flora and fauna in the area went extinct or was driven to near extinction on the periphery of this impact. And not only that, this impact would also likely increase greenhouse gases in the area and have lasting effects on the climate. Immediately after most large meteor strikes, there's usually a cooling in the climate. And also, yes, again, it's a meteorite. It does make contact with the Earth, so there has to be some impact happening here with the Galarian meteorite. I have an like an incredibly uh, related question of, is there an ice age in the Pokemon world? Yes, there is because of Gen Five. There's there's um, ice the ice dragon, right? Is the, or maybe I'm just like conflating ice dragon and ice age, but like in the set because we're twenty thousand years ago, um, the most recent like glacial period where there's like a ton of ice around pulling up wikipedia like ended around eleven thousand years ago so is this happening during a glaciation event where like the poles i think maybe down to the uk are covered in ice i am not sure that's a great question but i think that would make sense hold on because th this is a very different thing if this impacts an ice sheet versus if this impacts uncovered uh, ground because 
a meteorite hitting an ice sheet presumably is going to like flash melt all of that yes. water and you're going to rat i mean both are going to radically change the environment but like almost in like different ways i think there is a lot of ice at this time um in the uk right yes and it's mostly the north that has an ice sheet over it it looks like i'm trying to see if i can find like a similar map but i've got something that says approximately 20,000 years ago and yeah the uk i mean so so galler and kalos like a lot of like eastern and northern or western and northern europe are just covered in just a straight up ice sheet so this is insta melt the glaciers <laughs> that's fascinating that's fascinating because that means you're taking something that i mean there were definitely there's animals that like maybe actually i have no idea what this sort of like how many species could like live on top of ice sheets because i i don't know my like that level like time period of paleo stuff very well but like you're taking something that is relatively you know very few life forms actually there's ice pokemon so there's probably like a lot of ice pokemon forget the pokemon <laughs> like sorry i was in the real world too much i need to think about it in the pokemon world. so there is a lot of ice pokemon that are gone that are that are out just extinct ones we just never immediate, heard of just immediate uh immediately forced to to evolve into water <laughs> i don't think it's a thing they can do um, I'm not even sure there's like an equivalent in the real world that we could really look like in terms of a giant meteorite hitting an ice sheet. I could be wrong. Somebody please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But my when I was researching this, like the most that I could compare it to in terms of like a disastrous disastrous meteorite asteroid event is the Shikshulub crater in the Yucatan, mm -hmm. which is also thought to be the asteroid that caused the extinction of non-avian dinosaurs aka the fifth mass extinction and so that's kind of what i'm basing this off of although the shikshalub asteroid was 10 kilometers in diameter yeah, it was huge it was gigantic so i don't think this is gonna impact beyond galar like the galarian asteroid's not gonna have to i well it might i <laughs> I mean, Galar and Kalos, right? Like they're right next door, yes. and you're you're dropping something on an ice sheet, which means you are flash melting that and leaving that ground probably hot for a while. Um, I don't know how long. Like I I don't know enough to like say what it would do long term, but at least short term, you are opening up a. A, like ecosystem or like potential area for some for for a new ecosystem to emerge where there was ice before and so it right. might even be like after this event i mean it, like my brain's like trying to because like yeah we don't have an equivalent right. but it could be that this is something where like it shatters whatever's there but if it if it opens melts the ice down to the surface level um it could potentially, increase potentially colonization rates. Yeah, right? yeah, it because could be like, more could inhabit it. Yeah, you could see species from below the like the extent of the rest of the ice sheet, especially if like that kind of melting spreads out more, moving in 
Um, but there's a lot of questions of just like, how, like, will it freeze over before a lot of things can establish? Will things move in? And then there's just a hidden extinction where like stuff moves in while it's like a little more temperate for a couple thousand years. And then the ice crawls back over and like freezes stuff away. And you get another round of extinction there. I don't know. Lots of possibilities, but like fascinating to imagine. This is the best part of the theory crafting. (laughs) So we can use kind of what we know about the Cretaceous extinction, the fifth mass extinction to consider what may have happened in the Galar region and how it influences specifically the invertebrates that we know and love today that exist in Galar. So what do you think happened to invertebrates after what I would call the Galarian extinction event? Well, see, I had a, I had sort of like, I was building this mental picture, but I was picturing a un-iced over situation, right? We do and have so, creatures in the marine environment too. That's true. So we could also so, consider that. So that's going to be, okay, so the marine environment there, you're going to have stuff that was really used to cold cold water like polar species that impact probably going to be create like a i mean i'm looking at this thing there's like an earthquake component to it there's like the tsunami component to it so a lot of the like immediate disruption of um the marine ecosystem as well as what's on land i would guess that a lot of species it's tough to live in the cold. And so a lot of species that have adapted to those extreme colds are like kind of locked into those environments. Cause like their bodies, you know, you specialize for one type of thing, which means you kind of have to choose to, or evolve to like not be as good at as the other stuff and often not handle those changes because a lot of these polar environments are cold, really cold, but all the time. So I'd imagine that type of disruption would wipe out a lot of the kind of surrounding marine life, at least in the immediate aftermath of like in the actual like impact and the ice. Because there's a whole ice melting component. So you have fresh water. Yeah. Right. Being and a, a saline boiled and melted into the ocean. And. Oh, yeah. Disrupting like salinity. Yeah, which means you have a lot of saltwater animals that... So, again, I don't know about... It, like, I, I'm running on the... There's... Of, on, on the assumption of, like, there's a lot of parallels in, like, Pokemon biology and animal biology, but, like, you know, in real life, the problem that a lot of salt animals have is that in order to keep water inside themselves, they themselves become the same saltiness as the water around them, because then the water like won't move back and forth. So if you have something that is like a paper towel or, you know, a pile of salt, if you put water next to it, it'll get absorbed into the salty or the dry paper towel. It's the same sort of idea. Well, if I was equally salty, my water would not leave. Um, And so if you put a saltwater animal in a freshwater thing, they start just um, losing the, the water. They would gain water. So they start taking in more water than they need. Um, or losing salts and salts could be a lot of things but basically just like little dissolved minerals that like you these animals need for like just like basic stuff in their cells Um, and so you'd have a lot of problems now in pokemon 
I think there's a chance that they might be more okay because from what we've seen, from everything that I can recall seeing in like shows and games, there is little distinction in water type Pokemon being okay in both salt water and fresh water. I I I know there's differences in like where they can be found generally, but I don't recall any sort of like Pokedex entry off the top of my head saying like, oh, this is a freshwater Pokemon and it like really doesn't like being in the ocean. That's possible, but I don't know. So it could be that there's just like, as a general Pokemon thing, they are more comfortable adjusting to both. But if you're in a polar sea environment, I imagine you're pretty specialized for polar seas. And so all that fresh water is going to be really bad, even more so than the immediate disruption. Your entire like system of how you interact with the water around you is going to get really bad for you and probably <laughs> cause a lot of extinctions. I, the fact that the Galarian, like the darkest day is when all of the Pokemon go berserk, but I, maybe this massive, I'm, they should have talked about this mass extinction well, I, more in the Galarian history I think history the thing books. is, the darkest day is like what the people remember, right? Because I imagine right. 3,000 years ago, there's definitely people, I'm, I'm guessing, yes. in the setting as well as in real life. 20,000 years ago, this is an ice sheet. So in real life, right. there were no there's humans no one there. there. And I'm, if, if we're running on the same assumption, probably no humans there at the, at, as well. Um, and so there's no... Pal- paleontology is like popping off. It must be really, it must be really weird because you, you're getting not, like, first, there's like all the ancient stuff, right? And then there's very little during the ice sheet coverage. And then you get potentially this period, a mass extinction of the marine ecosystem. And then you get potentially like a bunch of new species that die within like a very narrow window when like whatever changes caused by the meteor, like return back to ice sheet if they do. And then you get another (laughs) extinction. (laughs) How many extinctions is that? That's a lot. It's more than I thought we would be discussing today, which, to be fair, was zero, but... (laughs) (laughs) In terms of invertebrates, I found a journal article in the Journal of Science by Wilf et al. that shows that insect diversity post the fifth mass extinction differed in North and South America, and these differences are relatively geographically close to each other. And to to give you more context about this, the researchers of this paper gathered data on insect feeding damage on flowering plant leaves from the Cretaceous, Paleocene, and early Eocene. That's a really cool way of measuring the, like, what these animals are doing. Because, like, you can't actually, getting insect fossils is really hard, but you can see their impact in all the plant fossils, which are relatively common. That's smart. And I think it gets even cooler because the way they measured insect diversity was by the pattern chewed into the leaves because you can tell relatively what kind of taxa it is by the chewing pattern. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. And so their research found that there was this decoupled plant and insect diversity after the fifth mass extinction. Basically, this means that low plant diversity did not always mean low insect diversity. It could mean the opposite, low insect diversity, high plant diversity, vice versa. And there was also seemingly mixed insect diversity across regions of North and South America. So some pockets would have 
more diversity than others, which seems counterintuitive when we think mass extinction, giant asteroid, everything should be not very diverse. And I think that's the thing that that is that you start appreciating more when you start getting into ecology is we kind of make these and I feel like in a lot of media you get these sort of like big regions of the world depicted to be like oh yeah everything here's the same like this is the jungle continent or this is the ocean and it's all the same but when you look at real life animals and nature you're starting to work on the scale of like like local habitats and local micro habitats even so you're you're yes this is like broadly you know a north american grassland environment but the the differences between whether this grassland surrounded by mountains or whether it's surrounded by a lot of rivers right is going to change a lot of the the specifics of what happens even though if you zoom out enough it might look the same when you want to get real answers you have to start thinking about a lot more of like the more kind of local context of that place and what it's actually like. So this is going to be a part one of two episodes. And when we return in the next episode, we'll be talking about how this Galarian mass extinction may be influencing the current invertebrates of the Galar region. Before we go, Sebastian, do you have any plugs anywhere people can find you? Do you want people to find you? Uh, please find me online and probably not in person. But if you'd like to learn about weird animals, if you didn't get enough weird animals today, that's my whole thing. Please go to spiderdaynightlive.com. That's spiderdaynightlive.com. And that'll get you to like all my stuff. I'm on all the social medias. Um, if you want to actually like have a chance to like ask me questions and stuff. I don't check Twitter that often anymore. So Instagram, or if you're on Blue Sky, hit me up there. I ha- what do I want to plug? Let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave a pause because I need to check with my publisher if I can talk about this. But I actually have a field guide to spiders that's coming out uh, in 2024. It should be rough sometime in the spring. And so if you're like, hey, I like bug type Pokemon. I wish they were real. Oh boy, do I have some very good news for you if you just go outside there's like literally millions of them uh, and they're everywhere and then if you look at them they do really really cool things and uh this field guide is a nice little pocket-sized small format um, but it's really aimed at people who are who are at that point in life where they're very curious and they want to start it's the sort of thing that i wish i had when i first got into arachnids and knew literally nothing about identification and so that should be out. It's called Spiders of, um, what, what is the title we went with? Spiders of the United States and Canada. So it's a Northern yes. America field guide. And by, it'll be by Adventure Keen Publishing. And there will be more details of that in the future, but like keep an eye out for other fun stuff. Uh, you can check out the BBC Earth podcast. Uh, if you would like to hear me more, go on weird tangents about weird animals because uh, that was a really fun show to do. And what else have I been up to? I don't know, um, because my memory goes away after a certain amount of time. 
<laughs> because living with ADHD is fun. Um, but it does keep things fresh. Oh, Crash Course Zoology. You want to learn more about weird animals? You want to know like what? Again, I want if you want to be like a real life Pokemon professor, uh, you know, like how do I do that? How do I get started? Check out Crash Course Zoology. I was the consultant slash like course curriculum designer for that. So like made the whole thing, all the ideas, and then worked with the script writers and the visuals team to like put it all together. And so if you just need like like a like a mainline influence of just like I thought animals are weird, but I maybe they're weird. Oh, they're they're so weird. They're really they're like I went Every to animal places. Animal is weird when you no, think but about like, it. I, you don't understand. No, you don't understand. I went to places when I was making this where I was just like staring. I'm like, I need to put this in the F. I don't know how I'm gonna. I need to put this in because I just learned something that was like sort of like shaking my idea of like what animals could do. Um. So that's all in there, and it's free for you to watch on YouTube. That's such a good way to advertise it, and just cool in general. Not just advertising, but I, I think that's a really cool way to think about how there's so much we don't know about animals I mean, that's, in general. That's like, yeah, that that feeling, right? That's what hooked me on Pokemon. I think there's a there's a there's an episode of uh, BBC Earth where I think I, t- I think there is we we open there's one episode where we open about Pokemon, and it's because for me and like I feel like a lot of other scientists and like my generation especially in the entomology we got hooked on that feeling of like going out into a world where things are all mysterious and discovering something unique discovering an animal that's really weird and then sort of wanting and craving that feeling in real life and it's something that you can get and that's something that has brought a lot of us to the field and i think it's there's for a while and maybe it's changing now there was this sort of like culture in like movies and documentaries that sort of like ennui about like the age of discovery of like yeah you know back in the day like darwin would go out and he'd like find a bunch of species and like all these like rich explorers would like go to far-flung places well to them far-flung there were like people there um and like find animals and be like i found a new animal ignoring the people who are like yeah i know that i see that animal every day um but the idea of like oh you can't do that anymore because all of the old white people did it already uh and so there's no more to find and that was sort of or like you have to go to like you know a far off island in like the mid pacific to do that and it was it was this like kind of vibe that you would get from a lot of shows and things like we traveled so far to find like this one new thing where like go to like go find a local entomologist and be like do you think there's a new species around here and he'd be like oh yeah i found like five things i've never i like they could be this i don't know i don't have the time to like look into them there's like a whole pile back there of like that's so true there's i saw this tweet where someone was like how many undescribed species are sitting on your desk right now? And all the taxonomists were like, oh, I've got tons of species that are probably like undescribed and new to science yeah. and they're just on my desk, but I don't have time. Yeah. And so like that is totally there. And it's just like a thing that is just not talked about. I think partially because like people like there's like this big cultural learned fear of like bugs, but also all of the stuff wrapped up in like the history of science and exploration. Uh, but people, they have been lying to you 
the bugs are out there. They are new bugs. They are fascinating. And like, you just literally got to go out and look for them. Like in a lot of cases, you don't even need equipment. You just, just go and like take a look and you'll see things that are like, oh, now I understand the inspiration for this Pokemon. Or like, oh, this would make a really cool po- Game Freak. Game Game Freak, I have ideas. Okay, just like I know you're listening. I know you're listening to Jillian's podcast. So please um, ignore the parts where previously I perhaps mentioned that I play ROM hacks. Please ignore those parts and then hire me to to design cool Pokemon. Because look, y'all, like sometimes sometimes you really hit, and then sometimes I'm like, you could have there. There's like there's so many options. There are like so many things that we could be doing here. Okay, so I'll just, I'll wait for that email. Thank you, Game Freak. So if you want to learn more about cool, awesome animals, cool ecology, you should go to all the places places Sebastian is at and find them on, find them on social media. And as always, listeners, you can join me and the Pika Science crew on Discord using the link below in this episode description. And finally, if you want to follow me, Jillian, on my socials, you can find me on Twitter at BugsOrBust, that is B-U-G-S-O-R-B-U-S-T. Thank you all for tuning in and leveling up with EXP.